Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. Uh, we'll be back in just a few seconds to talk with Yulia Yurchenko about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, please don't forget, uh, we only can keep doing this when you donate and subscribe and share. And come over to the website and join the email list. Be back in just a few seconds. Now joining me to discuss the current situation and big picture of the war in Ukraine is Yulia Yurchenko. She's a senior lecturer in political economy at the Political Economy, Governance, Finance, and Accountability Institute at the University of Greenwich in the UK. She's vice chair of the Critical Political Economy Research Network. She's an activist at the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign, and she's part of the Ukrainian social movement. Thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. So before we get into kind of a bigger picture conversation, uh, just talk about what are in terms of recent developments in Ukraine and, and, and particularly a, a lot of people uh, who are following this and analyze this uh, of the opinion that the United States wants to, and they actually say this openly, uh, use the Ukrainian war to weaken Russia. Um, I guess that's all very fine when you're sitting in Washington, but if you're uh, fighting and dying in the Ukraine, uh, maybe that's not your highest priority. Uh, what, what do you make of what, what appears to be uh, an American strategy that the you know that this is more of a proxy war, use Ukraine to weaken Russia, and that's more important than, than saving Ukrainian lives? I've heard uh, similar comments and I've heard these kind of questions before about, um, you know, uh, United States benefiting from weaker Russia. And uh, in in a sense, um, that kind of uh, observation is self-evident. Uh, do the United States want to be uh, the most import important uh, country in the world in, in terms of international politics and influence and setting the scene as they had since the Second World War? Of course they do. That is self-evident. Uh, are they, does it necessarily mean that they're plotting internationally to set up and provoke Russia into conflicts, as some people are also commenting? Probably. Uh, but then again, uh, neither of that is the cause of the current war. If it were purely the, uh, you know, the spread of NATO that was bothering Russia, they would have been in Latvia many years ago. There are much more Russians in Latvia than there, than there are in Ukraine. Uh, you know, and they actually are NATO members and Ukrainians were told a number of times that they wouldn't become NATO members. So we need to be looking at that. And, you know, now that, you know, Russia has been uh, uh, insisting uh, repeatedly on a form of uh, Finland, what they call Finlandization of Ukraine, as in this kind of, you know, non-status uh, non-member status with NATO. Well, now Finland is joining. So is is joining NATO? Is Russia going to invade Finland? I don't think so. So we need to be looking a little bit deeper behind the surface, uh, and we need to be understanding that, of course, both Russia and the United States have imperial interests. They are competing imperial powers within the within the empire of capital, uh, within 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 a capitalist world economy. Uh, they are not ideological counterweights like many uh, on the international left still like them to see because they, I, I suppose, uh, don't like to let go of their 
uh, of the memory of USSR. Russia is Russia is a KGB run oligarchy. It's not it's not something qualitatively better than what's going on in the United States. And that in itself, for uh, progressive politics internationally, it's quite a tragedy internationally, I have to say. China China also is no uh, walk in the woods for its workers. And, uh, and they have generated uh, an ecological disaster in the country while uh, building themselves industrially. And they had to make some uh, compromises, I suppose, in order to support their population economically. But in that process, they forgot that it was supposed to be people's state uh, and not the party state. So we need to be uh, to be able to make some uncomfortable acknowledgements when we try to see who's at fault and who's benefiting from this war. Um, of course, uh, you know, whoever, uh, this whole argument about Russia being humiliated and there being a desire and some appetite for it to be humiliated in the United States, it does hold some truth to it because it historically there's been this rivalry. But then again, I think it's important to, while, while acknowledging that, to also look at where Ukrainians sit in all of this, because while it uh, it can be uh, it can be said that Americans uh, again American government deep state state whatever you want to call them uh, are are using this uh, Russo Ukrainian war as a proxy in their rivalry with Russia. Uh, at the same time, uh, it is a war that has uh, that has weight in its own right. There is an old relationship, an old historical beef between Ukraine and Russia, and Russia has been a colonizer of Ukraine, and it has for centuries been hounding down uh, any uh, cultural or political elite that Ukraine had, uh, be they uh, more recently some you know right wing people that so many commentators like to appeal to, or not. Uh, there's been a lot of that kind of really bad history between the two countries and Russia has acted entitled to the territory of Ukraine, again, for centuries. So that needs to be acknowledged in its own right, I think. And at this point, uh, yes, we do see this kind of change of rhetoric, not just in the United States, but amongst other uh, Western European um political leaders, including Britain, for example, about reconstituting Ukraine in its constitutional internationally recognized borders. And that means, of course, Crimea uh, and the uh, temporarily occupied breakaway republics, uh, so-called, in the east of the country. Uh, and that is being seen by some as, an as a call for escalation of this war and further suffering of uh, military and civilians, indeed, as well. Um, well, on the one hand, uh, that argument does hold, but on the other hand, this is actually what the Ukrainian government and Ukrainian people, Ukrainian army and Ukrainian civilians see as the final point of this war. Why? Because there has been eight years of fighting, then ceasefire and negotiations. And the result of that was a full-scale invasion of Russia into Ukraine. Ukrainians simply do not believe that any ceasefire and negotiations can lead to the uh, kind of pushing Russians uh, uh, out of uh, the constitutional borders 
of Ukraine is what Ukrainian army, Ukrainian civilians, Ukrainian politicians uh, see as the final point of this war. There is a serious understanding uh, that unless Russians are pushed out of what is constitutional borders of Ukraine, there this war will continue on for generations. So, um, so while so what we have now then is the uh, is sort of like a, a U.S. if you like vision of the final point of this war coinciding with the vision that exists within Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, for better or for worse, this is this is the political reality right now, not least because Ukrainians have tried many years of negotiations with Putin. There is no trust whatsoever. And there's been such escalation of dehumanization and erasure of uh, Ukraine's political subjectivity in the Russian political discourse that I too do not quite see what other final point can there be for this war. Uh, that does mean longer and more fighting, but at this point it is not quite up to Americans or to Ukrainians exactly how long this war will last. Russia simply won't stop. And that is something that we need to understand. There is no appetite for negotiations in Russia. The, during his speech at the parade on the 9th of May, Putin has not referred to Ukraine once. He talked about having been at war, uh, been in a confrontation, rather. He didn't use the word war. Um, but he's, he talked about being, about fighting NATO and fighting for the freedom of Donbass. Uh, he, he didn't even use the word Ukraine. And that kind of dovetails with, uh, with the Kremlin and the Russian political, political elite, for lack of a better word, uh, a recent narrative, well, not, not very recent, but kind of escalated narrative about how Ukraine is not a political subject. It's not a thing in its own right. And therefore, what negotiations, you know, Ukraine and Ukrainianness and any memory of what Ukraine needs to be annihilated. We had that stuff on during the Catherine the Great reign and a number of other uh, emperors of Russia. So th there is this kind of historical imperial mission that Russia is completing. They do not see Ukraine as anything, as anything in its own right. So sadly, we are here for a long haul. And unless Russia is pushed out of Ukraine constitutional borders altogether, this, this war will never be over. And realization of that is actually quite, quite painful, if you like. Well, you kind of answered my question, but let me just parse my question a bit. Um, I was talking about now, not how it started. Um, and I don't disagree with you uh, on, mm. on I don't believe the expansion of NATO was the reason why Russia invaded. Uh, and, 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 and if it was, it was pretty stupid because now NATO is stronger than ever. And with Finland and Sweden maybe joining, um, if, if that was the objective, then that should be already considered a complete uh, failure. No, I think the objective was the capture of Donbass, a uh, land bridge to Crimea and fortifying Crimea as part of a long-term plan to incorporate all that into the Russian Federation. I, I, I think that's probably the real motivation here. Maybe there was a motivation to do more than that, but I think it's clear now that they can't do more than that, uh, at least so far. Um, 
I, I think the American motives of wanting to weaken Russia in terms of their geopolitical rivalry uh, is also stupid uh, because, and this is another question I want to talk to you, because the danger of nuclear war and the threat of the climate crisis, uh, frankly, is, is far more threatening to everyone in this world, including Ukrainians, uh, than just about anything else one can, than in fact, than anything anyone else can talk about. So I think a resolution of this war is critical, not just in terms of saving Ukrainian lives, but in terms of focusing back on the critical issue of climate crisis. Uh, you know, you got Russia as a fossil fuel country, uh, not, not a lot more. I mean, it's not only fossil fuel, but obviously it's dominant. If there isn't a plan, frankly, a global plan to help Russia transition off fossil fuel, they will fight to the death to defend fossil fuel and do anything they possibly can to, to distract and divert uh, a serious climate conversation, including uh, helping the Republicans and either Trump or a Trumpist. As long as there's a climate denier back in the White House, uh, it, it makes things better. Not that Biden's been some great climate fighting hero, far from it, but at least there's an acknowledgement it exists. No, I'm getting at this point we're at now, and, and I guess you did get to it when you say that the Ukrainian people's interests are coinciding with this interest of America, which is the constitutional borders of Ukraine need to be restored and defended. And uh, for the life of me, I don't know why. Why on earth could Ukrainians that don't live in Donbass care? If you're not an oligarch and you don't own the stuff that's in Donbass, and you're just a worker, either outside Donbass in Ukraine or in Donbass. Why do you care? Because, you know, if, if, if it becomes an independent republic, if it's even incorporated, they will have to fight Russian oligarchs. They will, if one way or the other, this is going to resolve itself more into a class question. And I don't get defending the sovereignty of these areas. Clearly, a lot of people in Donbass, I have no idea if it's really a majority. Uh, and the only way to find out is a legitimate referendum, not one held, you know, with Russian guns uh, pointed at people as they're voting. But it seems that in Lugansk and Donetsk, it, it looks like at least there, they had, at the very least wanted a federal solution. They wanted the Minsk agreement. They want legitimate autonomy. Maybe at this point they even want to be in the Russian Federation or not. Maybe, may, maybe the war has done the opposite. Maybe more people don't want to be in the Russian Federation. But how on earth is that worth so many lives and not find a peaceful way to find out what they want? And if they want some form of self-determination, shouldn't they have it? Well, I think, I, I think these questions should be directed at Moscow and not at Kiev. Kiev didn't start this war. Well, no, 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 but I agree with you. No, my, my. Why should Ukraine, let me, let me rephrase this. Why should Ukraine cede any territory to Russia? Why? Because it's, uh, it, well, first of all, it's not at the, at the moment, and I, I put quotation marks up here, it isn't to Russia, it's to these self-proclaimed independent republics. So. Well, Crimea is part of Russia now, according to Russia. And those, those so-called republics... Well, wh why should, okay, I'll tell you why they should. Okay, I'll, t I'll tell you why they should cede it. They should cede it 
because it's going to be an endless war otherwise, and the people in those areas will have to fight for their rights within those areas. And if they have to fight the Russian Federation or fight the oligarchs that are running Crimea or the oligarchs that are going to wind up running Donbass, then that's what they'll have to do. And hopefully they do it in solidarity with Ukrainian workers and people who fight their own oligarchs. Do you know what happens to people who are trying to oppose authorities in Russian-occupied areas? I assume they're being put in jail or I don't know if they're being killed. Sure. Tortured, kidnapped, sent to prisons in Russia without, like, gone without notice. Nobody know, no, Nobody has contact with them. There is lots of uh, reports by the East Human Rights Group and by the uh, Group for Civil Liberties, uh, Alexandra Matvichuk is uh, in charge of that. There, there is lots of evidence of people being persecuted, kidnapped, tortured, uh, their, their property being taken away from them. It's not a fun life. Uh, no doubt. There is economic dilapidation. There is destruction of industries. There is dismantling of factories and movement of them into Russia. There is looting. It's a pirate state. So there, so there is that. But also, you know, there are Ukrainian citizens living in those cities. So what are they not worth fighting for? Like, to me, every Ukrainian is as important as the next. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not saying worth fighting for, of course, but not, but if they're not fighting, worth fighting for if they wind up dead because of the fighting for. Like, it's not, why, why are so many people sacrificing their lives for a sovereignty that's essentially a fight between oligarchs? On both sides. I, 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 I do not in any way defend this Russian oligarchy. I take your point. I don't. You're going to need to ask people on the front line, but it is like to Ukrainians, it is an existentialist fight. We've already lost territory in 2014 and 15. Yeah. And now we're going to need to give give a bit more. And then in a few years, there will be another war and then another war up until there is no Ukraine, because that's Kremlin strategy. And that's your answer, because there will never be enough. Because with, with international bullies, with narcissistic leaders... As long as they are being appeased, they they feel that they're getting away with it and they will come back for more. And that's why Putin's regime must be destroyed. If in 2014 we have had the international response and support for Ukraine that we are seeing now, the current war wouldn't be. That simply wouldn't be because Putin was allowed to get away with uh, with grabbing Crimea and with sending his military uh, into Donbass and with supporting his completely illegitimate separatist movements that were part of, they were led by Russians by Russians and a lot of their sleepers and like you know there were there were there were local population participating absolutely but it there there were massive protests in support uh, like there were massive protests in Donetsk and in Lugansk against this separatism as well. So if the if Putin's land grab has had the international response it has now, in 2014, we wouldn't be having this war. And that realization exists in Kiev. That realization exists in Washington at this point. They have their own agendas as well, so I'm going to leave them there. I'm talking about Ukraine right now and why Ukraine is fighting. Because Ukrainian government, Ukrainian people understand that it's going to be in the next few years, there will be another war. 
and there will be another war up until there is no Ukraine left. So it is an existential, a historic fight for every city and for every person. And if Ukraine received the military support that it needed in the first weeks of this war, and not now, the, in, the, the incursion and the degree of incursion of Russian troops and the destruction that has been sustained wouldn't be where it is right now. When German finance minister laughed into the face of Ukrainian ambassador who was out begging for help on the 24th of February, and, uh, and uh, instead the German finance minister simply told him that there is no point trying to help you because in, in the next few days everything will be over and we'll have to get used to the new order of things. That was position in Washington as well. They didn't expect Ukraine to fight that much. They didn't want to be dragged into any of this. So Ukrainians will fight till will fight. What? But what? What? No. But this national identity you're talking about defending is a national identity that's been mostly led, controlled by the Ukrainian oligarchs. Why? Why is that national identity? No, that's not true. Well. Come on. That isn't true. When did the Ukrainian people Ukrainians control Ukraine? Political subject, political subjects in their own right. Just because some oligarchs are twisting and turning certain things to their own benefit doesn't mean that it means nothing to Ukrainians themselves. We have been laughed at by Russians for generations. But I'm saying the same, but I'm saying exactly the same thing about the Russians. The whole Russian national identity is entirely based on an imperial nostalgia, the Russian Orthodox Church. Like this, this idea itself, that national identity, that's a national identity of oligarchs in control, or the church, together with the church, whether in Russia, Russian or Ukrainian, that whole national identity is a, is a way to wage war on behalf of oligarchs. It's a way to suppress people. In Russia, too, even more in Russia, if you want. What is Putin doing? This, you know, this has been a, a godsend to Putin. The national fervor, the nationalist uh, mania he's been able to create through this war has strengthened him at a, at a time where he may, may have been in, in some jeopardy. Uh, this this war has been a boon to him. Uh, don't we have to get beyond, as we had to in the First World War, we being progressive people, talk about this outside of the, of the uh, kind of national identity that gets workers to go kill workers? But it is, it is more than that, isn't it? No, I don't think so. It is way more than that, because for, for Ukraine, the reason there is... The national identity, the, the reason that national identity is such a big part of this specific war is because the premise for starting this war is the negation of existence of said identity. Yeah. Putin doesn't, doesn't recognize that Ukraine is a nation in its own right. So the reaction, political reaction is to prove that, yes, we are. And there we have history and then we have literature and culture and songs and dress and all all of that kind of stuff to an extent there is that but you know you can be a ukrainian politically or ethnically by identity and be a worker fighting against russian oligarchy at the same time and ukrainian oligarchy at the same time those are not mutually exclusive a national fight as a way of kicking out foreign bourgeoisie off your land is perfectly legitimate part of anti-imperialist decolonization process. 
you know, you did, nationalism doesn't have to be imperial and it doesn't have to be uh, based on the around the idea that somehow one nation or ethos is superior to other, but rather to claim the rights to to the land on which people live. Because in the current international framework of international relations and legislature, we still function in a post-Westphalian system or Westphalian system of nation states. And there needs to be there are, there are the recognized signifiers of uh, of uh, nations, not on the level of ethos, but as imagined communities with certain recognized signifiers. So in that terrain, it makes sense for that kind. There is sense for that kind of identification. But I do agree with you that the fundamental fight right now and in the long run, especially, has to be against global oligarchy. Like it doesn't matter whether you, the oligarch is from Ukraine or Russia uh, or from the United States, they're exploiting the workers all the same. National bourgeoisie, arguably, can be said, is a little bit, a little bit more interested in uh, getting some sort of political purchase with people domestically, not least because they want to remain, they want to keep maintaining political power. And there is some sort of, you know, participate in some elections or fund certain parties and this and that and the other. But fundamentally, of course, you know, it has to be an emancip- a, a, a fight that is emancipation against emancipation from uh, emancipation of workers across the board and both in Ukraine and Russia. But the current war and the reason it was started wasn't it, it, it wasn't a war against oligarchs. No, I, I, I understand it was, that. It is a war that that is based on that, that that the premise of which is eliminating of the of anything that of Ukraine as a political subject and Ukrainians as people. So it it will be really difficult at this point to disentangle the national question from uh from the the strategy plan telos of victory in this war. I do not see how that's, that's going to be possible. But if the only ending is what you say, the, the defend till the end, the uh, constitutional borders of Ukraine, then there's no ending without a massive, massive more loss of life and probably no ending because eventually, listen, Ukraine does not have, I can't imagine, I'm not a military expert, but I can't imagine Ukraine has the strength militarily to push the Russian troops out of Crimea or uh, Donbass. It's too. Cl- they have the entire. They, what have they committed? What ten percent of Russian forces? I mean, if they brought in thirty, fifty percent, I mean, there's a point where this does not. There cannot be a win the way you're saying, and and when you're talking about Crimea, ex- well, let me finish, uh, please. Uh, my understanding from a lot of polling that's gone on, even by Western polling firms who are not uh, biased in favor of Russia, that in Crimea, even though the referendum might be suspect because there was already occupation, but still the polling has shown that the referendum did reflect pu- public opinion in Crimea. The people in Crimea did want to join the Russian Federation. That seems to be what all the polling shows by, by about four or five very reputable polling companies. So why shouldn't they be able to if that's what they want? What, why, is, why is this Ukrainian identity more important than what the people of Crimea want? Who, like why? Like I, I have to tell you, as a Canadian, 
if tomorrow there was going to be a war between Canada and the United States and thousands of people would die because the United States decided they hate some Canadian government and they want Canadian resources. And they, I, I, you know what I would say? Great. Make us the, a state so we can help out, uh, control the outcome of the Electoral College in the United States. Because it, this kind of sovereignty is just not worth fighting for when the real fight let me just let me just finish please please let me i'm going to stop at that okay just just let me finish for one sec i'm not saying never there are times when when the external aggressor wants to impose a like a hitlerite police state and i don't rule out that is what the russians are doing right now in in many parts of ukraine but it there I'm, i'm not saying on no conditions does one have to defend one's sovereignty and and, and 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 even nationality, although I hate this concept of national identity. But at any rate, when there's an external op- aggressor at the level of uh, Hitler or, or even the United States and Iraq, if you want, you know, the Americans were slaughtering people in Iraq. And I don't know if the people had any choice but to fight. There are times. But I'm saying right now over the question of Crimea and Donbass, why is that worth a continuing war when, when a demand for a referendum could find out what those people actually want? Well, I understand that you do not see the point in fighting for Ukrainian territories, but I'm, I'm sorry, but it's not up to you to decide what Ukrainians should and shouldn't want. Oh, that's for sure. And, and the international solidarity means supporting those who are fighting against aggression. And whether you understand their reasoning or not. For Ukrainians, it is important because it is their land that there has been grabbed for generations and for centuries. And because so many people have been tortured, raped and killed and so many cities have been bombed and they have to be avenged. And if this is what Ukrainians need to do, this is what they should be supported in doing. And you do not have to understand it. I, I understand that. I do not. Let me finish, yeah, please. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I do I do understand. Like, I, I do think that Ukraine should be reconstituted in its constitutional borders. And we've, we've talked with you about this before. That uh, should any territory at any point decide to go into some sort of degree of devolution, autonomy, or even become its own state, by all means, there are procedures for that. And that should be facilitated for them. There there are constitutional procedures for that to be enabled. That needs to be done without any occupiers and with all people who have been pushed to flee, returning and taking a meaningful vote. A lot of vote, a lot of polling that's been done in the Crimea has already been done after the occupation. So there is also a lot of, uh, there are a lot of questions as to how um, reliable it is, but also after a lot of people have fled the Crimea, of those who didn't want to be part of Russia. So we need to take that into account as well. And up until everybody who was living in in the Crimea uh, in winter 2014 has taken a vote that has not been under duress of any kind. And all of those who have moved to Crimea since 2014, because lots of Russians had, they shouldn't have a say in what is going to happen with Crimea because they are occupiers. They should not have any say in that. They like Crimean weather so much, by all means, buy a flat and retire there like other people do. But do not put your flag up on the balcony and say that it's Russia right now. 
This is not how international politics work. This, that kind of level of entitlement is simply shouldn't have any right to be. People who live in certain areas should be deciding how they want to be. And I, I do not think that, they, that any, any, any order should be imposed by any troops from any country. And again, like, you know, if Donbass want to be their own republics, by all means. But it has to be done properly, not, not how it has been done. Next thing, in terms of kind of how uh, the kind of how that kind of reconstitution of borders in the future of Donbass and Crimea to be decided, uh, I do not I do not think that the best the best thing to do is physically pushing all the Russian troops out to the border of 2013 is the best strategy in the immediate future. But getting Russia to withdraw, to pull troops back to where they were uh, on the 23rd of February of this year, so before the, this current state of invasion happens. So if, they, if they're still in the Crimea and if they are in these so-called LNR and DNR, the, the shape that they were in at the beginning of February, then a plan, for, then a certain uh, transition plan under international independent uh, observation can happen where this polling, as you say, referendums can be can be put into place, and the destiny of those regions can be decided meaningfully in a in a properly internationally facilitated tra transparent pro process where people who live in those uh, in those regions can decide for themselves without guns being held to their head how this how they want their future to be. Right, so. I think there is when we talk about pushing Russia all the way out of Ukrainian territory, we need to also differentiate timelines of what is immediate and what is long term uh, and kind of medium term solutions. Because I also do not think that, you know, fighting till the last person and the last tank just so certain certain points have been proven. It's not a great idea. Russia needs to be pushed back of what they've grabbed since the 24th of February. They need to uh, they need to pay for the damage that they have done and uh, and uh, in proper investigation into war crimes uh, of all kind by all parties need to be done and those responsible need to be held accountable. But uh, but Ru Russia needs to be needs to be pushed out of Ukraine. And a meaningful international peacemaking plan and reconciliation and reconciliation plan needs to be worked out. That's that's what I think. But like pushing Ukrainian Ukrainian troops, pushing Russians out of Crimea overnight, I'm not sure that's that's the best plan. If they are given enough uh, enough troops and Russia is really retreating, and that looks like an easy thing to do, then yeah, by all means. But at the same time, I think there 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 are some risks about. Uh, again, about clashes with local population because of what has happened in the last eight years, not least. So there needs to be there need to be uh, nuanced, careful solutions and plans worked out to how of how to how to manage these processes. But you think, from your view, the fighting could stop if Russia was back at February twenty third borders? Certainly, if they are also willing to negotiate. Uh, about what's what is what is generally kind of uh, how to manage the aftermath of uh, of this of this phase of war. Uh, 
because they will they will have to they will have to cooperate in terms of uh, international investigations. They will have to cooperate in terms of reparations and, and rebuilding of what they have bombed in the country. They will have to return those people who they who they are moving to the far uh, to the far east of Russia. Hundreds of thousands of people who are who are being forced forced removed into the depth of Russia, they will have to bring those people back. But you're talking about what's essentially a defeat of Russia in the sense that they pull back yes. without any gains. And as, as much as I agree with you, that's what they deserve because they deserve nothing from the invasion. Uh, that said, I don't, I don't see that happening. I don't know when. This means this war goes on for a long time. If that's if that's the only way it resolves, I'm not. I'm, I don't know. I think there are quite a lot of uh, factors uh, that can that can interfere with the with the course of this. I I agree that it can. It looks like some sort of slower phase may set in whatever that means that can last quite a while but again you know there are a lot of factors that that can get in a way that can change the course of this war there uh, uh, there is a lot of reluctance on behalf of russians to fight uh their uh contract and regular army are finding more and more loopholes uh so that they do not have to participate in fighting. They don't want to be fighting. Um, there is uh, there is a lot of significantly more advanced weapons uh, coming into Ukraine, as in more advanced than anything that Russia has, and that is also a serious factor for Putin if he realizes that uh, he cannot kind um, of continue advancing and indeed on a lot of on a lot of front lines and on a lot of points there is the Ukrainian counteroffensive is is quite effective so that that will uh that will be quite important there is a lot of dissatisfaction with Putin and and this war domestically in Russia uh on behalf of ev average Russians and also uh political and economic elites and so how how the whole thing will will play out, I think I think a lot will be decided in the coming months. When, when you say that, when you say that there are constitutional means to have uh, uh, to find out what the people of Lugansk and Donbass and and Crimea want, uh, would that be part of of that that kind of a solution? In other words, not some far off day, but a process that's instituted as part of a Russian withdrawal. I I think it should be, and uh, there are uh, internationally worked out precedents of how to deal with peace make peace building and reconciliation processes, uh, and that that would need to be enabled by international institutions because if it is purely done by well Ukrainians don't quite have the the institutional no human resources no financial capacity to do it on their own anyway. Uh, but international institutions will have to be involved. Um, uh, organizations working with uh, a part of the UN uh, frameworks um, uh, to uh, to help Ukraine um, to help Ukraine and lo lo people locally and 
governments and, and the military figure out what, what to do. Uh, the nuances of that plan will have to be worked out, but I think I think a serious um, a serious reconciliation plan will have to be in place. And uh, we also need to learn from the failures of the Minsk process, because some of the uh, some of the sort of seeds of the current conflict have been buried deep in the Minsk process itself, because it's it's. It recognized um, different parties referred to Ukraine and uh, the concept of Ukraine's sovereignty in quite different ways. So uh, for Russia, it meant, for example, that Crimea is part of Russia. For Ukraine, it meant that its borders are violated and those territories are temporarily invaded. So if you do not have an agreement from the get-go as to where the borders are supposed to be and whose territory is which, you cannot work out any meaningful plans for uh, for for those for those territories and people in those territories, uh, you know, rebuilding any any meaningful institutions after the fighting is over. You know there has to be, and 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 you know, and that process needs to be informed by what people living in those territories actually want themselves, rather than what a couple of politicians decided their destiny should be. And that I think should be enabled by international institutions, because that's the only and international observers, because that's the only way to ensure that neither party exercises any duress uh, on. On, on participants of surveys or, or referendums or whatever that will be. You're part of Social Movement Ukraine. And on the website, if I remember correctly, uh, one of the things that sort of a demand or a position was after the war uh, is to expropriate, essentially nationalize what the Ukrainian oligarchs have stolen from the Ukrainian people. What does that look like? And how do and do you think there's a chance of that? Are the are the people once this is over, uh, is the kind of national unity that's been developing now against the Russians uh, is that going to trump a fight against the oligarchs? Um, I am hopeful that some of it can be done in some shape, uh, but I'm I'm not holding my breath uh, to be honest because. Even though there may be quite the appetite for that in the masses, for lack of a better word, um, the that does not quite coincide with like there isn't a kind of a majority support for that kind of thing in the parliament, for example, because the biggest party, which is the servant of the people, uh, wants to serve people by liberalizing the market, and that never really serves the people. Uh, and we know that there is a there there is a there is a variegation of uh, of views in the parliament, but there isn't quite the majority there. What we do see is uh, a stronger perception um, in 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 kind of in the collective uh, consciousness, if you like, of Ukrainians that thieving oligarchs have partly been uh, responsible for getting this, the, the country to the point where war was possible and, you know, civil, civilian clashes and then international interventions and so on and so forth. So 
to my mind, should there be some sort of political initiative for uh, for such transfer of ownership rights, uh, if you like, I think there would be a lot of popular support for that. So uh, the kind of the constellation of political forces we're going to end up having in the executive and in the legislative power will determine that. We see now that, uh, of course, Zelensky is a wartime hero. He's extremely popular. So the it's the the most like unless he decides for some reason to not go for the second term, uh, it's quite clear that nobody can quite contest his position. Um, so and and he's not somebody who will who will be facilitating these kind of reforms. He's not him and his party. Well, quite quite the contrary. He's he 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 is if I understand it correctly, part of and represents a section of the oligarchs. No, absolutely. You know, he's uh, kind of, uh, and uh, his party have been busy um, deregulating the labor market, for example, uh, and, you know, in, amidst the fog of war. Uh, and uh, some of the, some of the changes are, are deemed temporary for the, for the wartime period, but we, we will see how, how things go. First of all, the wartime period can last a very long time. Secondly, uh, you know, there are a lot of, like, these kind of laws are, are easier to adopt than they are to revoke. So um, uh, a lot of a lot uh, sort of remains to be seen how uh, how it will play out. I, I'm not holding my breath, as I said, but some of the things that we're doing uh, in terms of campaigning with the social movement and kind of uh, and developing the uh, post-war reconstruction plan, like macroeconomic reconstruction plan, is um, Utilizing, if you like, instrumentalizing the current government's European Union membership ambition to get them to think about um, having in public, uh, having in, in workers control and management and in national ownership, at least public services and infrastructural enterprises. Because under the, uh, under the EU um law like under foundation according to the foundational uh treaty stipulations european commission must remain neutral on the ownership matters of public services right and public services are cheapest and most effective when they are run publicly and not privately it's basically economics 101 so uh, we're tr I, because this, you know, I do not think Ukraine will ever be admitted into the European Union. That's a separate matter. But what I do think is important is this kind of the push for doing everything through the market that's also coming very strong from Brussels and it's stipulated in the deep comprehensive free trade agreement because it's not just key. It's not it, a lot of it doesn't come from Kiev. Yeah, like there are a lot of marketeers in Kiev. But a lot of it is coming as part and parcel of structural adjustment loans that came from the IMF and also this these trade agreements signed with the EU, right? So because now there is there is a historic opportunity to have a kind of an extraordinary revision of some of the rules of engagement with the EU, some ground can be won should there be a push 
from Kiev. There can be arguments made that should if the economy wants to be restructured, if, if we want to restructure the economy, and if you and the EU don't want to be dealing with the millions of Ukrainian refugees, you need to help us rebuild things. And you need to help us uh, do it on the principles of European Green Deal. Uh, with good environmental standards, so kind of you know put put institutional protection so illegal organ and the Carpathians can be stopped, and like you know, a, a bunch of different and help us you know build energy sovereignty by uh, supporting us in deployment of renewable energy capacity or deployment or, or creation of green jobs in the foundational economy and care economy that are from get that are by design low carbon. They build a stronger welfare state, provide social security net for people, everybody cheering happy. So there is this, there is some ground that can be won within the current infrastructure. Because I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I, I like to think about, you know, great socialist future for Ukraine and for other countries. But I'm also a pragmatist and I'm trying to see what within current frameworks is possible to get. Like, you know, because those small wins, they, they do add up over time and they do make a difference. Uh, and I think this is this is a great opportunity right now to review some of the rules of engagement that are enshrined in this uh, association agreement, in this deep comprehensive free trade agreement with the EU. Because some, you know, there there is this kind of hard wiring of the market in there, but it doesn't have to be. Because in the EU architecture itself, in some in certain sectors, kind of public ownership and management is actually guaranteed as well. Like you know, it is possible to do it. So I'm 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 busy sort of studying what other bits of ground can be won in that sense. And I think there is um you know there are a lot of strong arguments coming out of how the economy was managed during this uh, during this recent phase of war since 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 February uh, is also something that can be convincing both for Brussels and for the Ukrainian pol politicians who are usually kind of obsessed with markets and everything has to be done has to be liberalized. So Ukrainian railway, for example, have been fantastic uh, in uh, managing evacuation uh, of people in bringing arms and machinery in bringing it food supplies and medication under shelling you know it, it's they've done phenomenal work and they've lost uh uh some of their workers uh, some some of their workers died but like if that enterprise had been privatized by now there would be no way in hell that that uh that the the logistics could have been handled as uh as efficient as as effectively as they have been Right. So there is a strong argument for saying, look, we need to remain if the government didn't have control over Ukraine railway. All of this wouldn't be possible. Let's keep it in public hands. Let's give the management to the workers because they are the ones who actually manage the whole thing. Overnight, they had to come up with a plan. We communicate with the trade unions. Uh, with the biggest trade unions in the country and including the independent uh, trade union for the railway workers. And the Ukrainian railway is the biggest employer in the country. And they told us that they they had to come up with evacuation plan and like how to work. They had to figure out how to work in the military, in the, in the, in the wartime situation overnight because the Ministry for Defense nor anybody else has given them any indication that they should have a plan ready. Right, and they managed to just do it uh, to to adapt so fast, and they did spectacular work of it. Let me ask one final question: uh, the 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 role of the uh, organized Nazi far right militias, who are now, if I understand correctly, have been more or less incorporated into the Ukrainian military, 
is that going to contribute to denazification or does that actually help uh, nazify larger sections of the Ukrainian military? And how do you deal with that? Well, they, it's not that they have been more or less integrated. They are part of the military forces and they are subject to the orders from the Ministry for Defense. They are not free agents like they were in 2014. So they, they are their army. Yeah. So in that sense, they are right wingers, right winger army men, which exist in every single army of the world. Usually it's people who are right wing who go to the military. That's that's kind of how it goes. Uh, there are territorial defense battalions composed of socialist, communists and anarchists. We have friends in there. So there is that as well. Um, in terms of the, um, you know, the kind of the more nasty Nazi elements uh, of some of these battalions that formed in 2014, and then they have been integrated in the army as part of as part of taming them, if you like, and bringing them under control. Right. Uh, a lot of them have mellowed down quite a lot. They basically realize that uh, there isn't a lot of public appetite uh, for overt Nazism in Ukraine. Yeah, even if they are wartime heroes. Uh, the majority of population has uh, that does not have much appetite for them being on the scene. So the Azov, for example, have mellowed down their rhetoric quite significantly. They they for strict whether they themselves have become a bit more fluffy or whether it was a strategic decision, I can't tell you. Uh, probably a bit of both, to be honest. Um, but um, whether they will Nazify the army, well, a lot of them have already been killed in Mariupol. So there is that for you. Uh, and they have been talking about uh, actually being thrown in there being, and being, being abandoned in a sense, because you know, it's, it's, a, it's a convenient thing to get rid of, of those that you do not quite like. And that as horrible as that sounds. But, you know, like wars are often used to get rid of certain groups socially. Uh, that's, that's also a, a, a harrowing historic fact, uh, an observation rather. Uh, but what we have seen also is that there are Crimean Tartars and there are Georgians and there, and, uh, there are non-white people and there are Jews fighting in Azov uh, and and. Uh, and a lot of them are Russian speakers uh, fighting together. So, um, is it? Does it? What does it tell us about? You know, their kind of their kind of Nazi uh, white supremacy of Azov. Perhaps they they really are mellowing down. Uh, perhaps it simply sort of grew into something else. Um, I'll have to do more work on that and there, there are people who are, who are better fit to answer that question there are there are scholars who study these battalions much more closely um but i do not i do not think that i do not think that nazification of the army will necessarily be coming from the right from specific right-wing uh battalions one thing that concerns me about um fascization if you like of 
or like notification of the military and i it's it's not it's not quite that i i i think those terms are a little bit clumsy in this specific context but what we do see is that and that again is just is, is understandable and justifiable in the current state of things is that there is uh, there is a very strong sense of russophobia of course and there is some dehumanizing language that's being used uh when when referring to russians uh, uh and russian specifically russian fighters um by the military but also we hear that sometimes from ministers during press conferences and from politicians and you know and the rest of it so my concern is that is that this this kind of dehumanizing language and uh, derogatory attitude and um, uh, and this kind of dislike will or dislike hatred uh, that that will outlast the war. And I would not want that to happen because during the war, I think it is perfectly justifiable and it's understandable. You know, the, you've seen uh, videos of of the destruction and uh, to cities and to human life uh, that this war has brought. So the kind of the rage against the Russian army is perfectly justifiable right now. Whether it will stay and whether it will translate into blanket hatred of everything Russian and all Russians and whether it will outlast the war, that remains to be seen. And that is something that I would not want to actually see happening because that kind of that kind of poisoning of... Uh, public consciousness, that poisoning of one's heart and uh, mind is uh, is not is not a healthy state. On it's not a healthy state in which you can you can rebuild uh, re rebuild society, rebuild the country. But also, whether you want it or not, Russia is next doors, and we're going to have to find ways of living together next to each other without breaking into wars. And we need to be thinking about that now. And, and indeed, with the Ukraine Solidarity Campaign, we have been um, uh, going to rallies in, in here in London uh, with the group called Russians Against War. We're building we're building a relationship with them and we're trying to think about how and like, so there are there are people here based in London. There are some politicians and cultural uh, figures in Russia who are also part of that movement, you know, the kind of the white and blue flag and the rest of it. So I think those, the kind of dialogue with Russians who never supported this war, and that is, I, I still think that that's the majority of Russians uh, and the politicians and the uh, and the kind of cultural, political, um, uh, politically and culturally active persons we need to be building that now, and we need to also send a signal to every to average Russians, Ukrainians. We Ukrainians need to send the signal that we do not hate all Russians. Let's please get rid of. Let's finish this war, and let's rebuild and learn to uh, learn to build our neighboring relationships on this on the on the position of mutual respect. Um, and let's let's start rebuilding that trust that has been so broken right now. I think that relationship is possible, and uh, and we have to start building uh, building it sooner or later. And the sooner we do it, the better. I know it's extremely difficult in the position of war, but I think the foundations for that are already being la being being laid, and that that is really good to see. All right, thanks very much, Julie. Thank you, and thank you for joining us on the Analysis News. Please don't forget to sign up for our email list. Uh, and perhaps hit the donate button.